Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about science fiction, science, society, and the way that we're going to progress in an orderly fashion into a bright and shining future where we all become robots who are enslaved by bigger robots. I'm Annalie Newitz. I'm a science journalist who writes science fiction, and my forthcoming novel, The Terraformers, can be pre-ordered now so you can get it nice and warm in your hands in January. I'm Charlie Jane Anders. I'm currently writing the New Mutants comic book for Marvel Comics, and I have a space fantasy trilogy for young adults. And the third book is out in April. It's called Promises Stronger Than Darkness. Today, we're going to talk about one of the most cherished tropes in science fiction, the idea that technology and science and civilization are always getting better and that the future will be wealthier and fancier and more complicated than the present. Call it the myth of progress. We're going to explore where this myth comes from and how it's reflected in some of our favorite stories and some of our less than favorite ones. And then in the second half of the episode, we're going to be joined by economist Brad DeLong, whose new book is all about economic progress in the 20th century and why that progress stopped in 2010. Also on our audio extra next week, we'll be talking about our favorite predictions for the coming social media collapse. And by the way, did you know that this podcast is entirely independent? It's funded by you, our listeners, through Patreon. And if you become a patron, you are making this podcast happen You're helping the world progress toward greater civilization and more types of podcasts that you can buy and more shiny things that you can buy to listen to podcasts with. Plus, you get mini episodes every other week if you become a patron and you get access to our Discord channel where we hang out all the time, especially now that Twitter has disappeared off the internet. So think about it. For just a few bucks a month, we recommend five bucks. We'll give you all that. We'll give you extra us. We'll give you community on Discord. And our opinions will tend to become even more correct. So you can find out more about how to support us on patreon.com slash our opinions are correct. All right, let's get ready to march forward into the future. couple of really influential definitions of civilization that kind of shape the way we imagine progress. And I'm forcing you, Charlie Jane, to summarize the first one. And this is a idea of civilization that you'll probably recognize because it was popularized by Carl Sagan. Yeah, I think you're referring to the Kardashev scale, which is based on the work of Nikolai Kardashev. And he first proposed it as a way to kind of look for extraterrestrial civilizations back in 1964. Kardashev divided civilizations up based on how much energy they can extract from their environment. And so a type one civilization is able to access all the energy that's available on its own planets. A type two civilization can directly consume 
all of the energy of a star. A type 3 civilization, kind of a big leap, is able to capture all of the energy that's emitted by its host galaxy. And later, Carl Sagan refined this idea, suggesting that it was a sliding scale and that humanity was actually still below type 1 because we hadn't fully harnessed all of the energy available on Earth. Mm -hmm. Other people have added types 4 and 5 to describe civilizations that can extract energy from multiple galaxies or even multiple universes. Hashtag goals. <laughs> or not, because it's interesting to think about how this really influential definition of civilizational progress, where we proceed through steps one, two, three, it all involves consumption of energy. Like that's how we're measuring the progress of civilization. You know, you see this scale being referenced in Star Trek and a lot of other science fiction, especially in the 70s and 80s when it was really popular. But what I think a lot of people don't realize is that this idea of ranking civilizations and coming up with kind of arbitrary measures to do it based on consumption um, actually has a long history. And it goes back to the 19th century when a number of different thinkers, anthropologists and scientists were trying to figure out how to rank civilizations during the colonial era. And remember, this is a period of time in the 19th century when a lot of European countries were colonizing and extracting energy and resources from Africa, from Asia, from Southeast Asia, especially um, the Americas. And so it was a period of time when scientists had a lot of vested interests in trying to claim that certain groups were more civilized than others. One of the most influential of these civilizational scales from the 19th century came from a guy named Lewis Henry Morgan, who wrote a book in 1877 called Ancient Society or Researches in the Lines of Human Progress from Savagery Through Barbarism to Civilization. So he's writing in the Americas and he's writing at the tail end of the Indian Wars where white settlers were basically pushing indigenous nations out of their homelands. And he identifies seven quote-unquote ethical periods that he believed could be applied to all people throughout the world and throughout history. So here, get this, here are his seven ethical periods. Lower savagery, middle savagery, upper savagery, lower barbarism, middle barbarism, upper barbarism, and civilization. So there's, there's only one slot for civilization. And he believed that indigenous civilizations in the United States hovered between upper savagery and middle barbarism. And he rated civilizations partly the way Kardashev did. He looked at their levels of technical and material development and how much property they had and how much food they could produce, like how efficient they were at producing and consuming. However, he also added a little frosting on top of that, because remember he was talking about ethics, and that had to do with how closely a group had advanced toward Christian family values. And so he believed there was this universal law of progress that dictated that every single social group would move through these stages and end up as civilized Christian property owners, which, again, you can see how this idea really helped out with this 19th century United States notion that all indigenous people should be converted to Christianity and should become property owners just like their European neighbors. But it also became 
an idea, not just Morgan scale, but really similar scales that tried to rate civilizations were super popular at that time at the turn of the 20th century and started showing up in science fiction and in fantasy, where you would encounter different groups that were referred to, you know, without any irony as barbaric or civilized. And science fiction writers like H.G. Wells, for example, would have been completely familiar with this, this idea and thinking about it in their work. And of course, Wells has like, you know, different versions of humanity in, in the time machine who are either very civilized or fallen into barbarism. And that's a thing. And I read an essay recently that said that Victorians sort of thought of technological progress and social progress as the same thing, that they moved together. Yeah, that's right. And then in the early 20th century, we start to see science fiction writers pushing back against this idea. Yeah, and it, it feels like there's like a wave, like maybe around the 1920s of stories that are really questioning this notion of progress and specifically like the idea that technological progress is going to make us happy and that we are kind of asymptotically heading towards some kind of state of like being quote unquote civilized and that everybody is going to get there eventually. You have like The Machine Stops by E.M. Forster, which feels more relevant now than it did 100 years ago, which is about a world where everybody lives indoors underground and looks at screens all the time and everybody's just connected through, he doesn't call it the internet, but it's basically the internet. And nobody has any other connections with other people except through the internet. And then everything breaks down and people are screwed. There's also the clockwork workman in the 1920s. There's the famous play RUR, which kind of launches the trope of the robot uprising as a way to think about, you know, how workers are screwed over during this time. And then, of course, there's Brave New World, which actually has a character. The protagonist is known as the savage. And he comes into this like, allegedly sophisticated advanced society where everybody is like genetically engineered and, you know, people are engineered with different levels of intelligence. And there's this kind of parody of industrial production where it becomes a religion, Fordism. And so it feels like there are a lot of writers of like speculative fiction in the 1920s who are kind of warning about the downside and the underside of progress and industrialization and this notion that civilization is some kind of end state because technology is going to change who we are and in some ways it's going to make us worse people. Yeah, and I think also because there's this inherent hierarchy in all of these ways of measuring civilization. It's a way of saying like one civilization is just better than the other because they have more gadgets. Mm -hmm. And while you have science fiction writers and also social movements pushing back on this idea, you also get in the mid 20th century, this incredible embrace of the notion that the more technology we have, the better we are. And you get this kind of curve where ideas about the future become part of advertising and consumer capitalism. It's kind of like mm -hmm. almost the invention of futurism. And you get these ads for basically smart homes in the 1950s where everything will be yours with the push of a button. You get the classic sort of Jetsons vision of the future, which is just everybody kind of leads a life of leisure and like you can just always have anything you want. And your entire home is basically a giant computer that can like give you anything that you want. It's the Westinghouse total electric home. A home where electricity does everything. Heats, cools, illuminates, launders, preserves and prepares foods, entertains. 
It even lights a path to the front door with rayescent strip lighting. That was an ad for a Westinghouse electronic house that was made in the 1950s. And it really sums up this kind of phase, I would say, in our notion of progress. And it's interesting because the 50s are also a period when you have a huge explosion of fantasies about spaceflight and about colonizing other planets. And this brings us to the Kardashev scale, which is assuming that humans, as we progress, as we gain all of the technology and all of the gadgets to consume all of the energy on Earth, that next the next phase will be, okay, we start moving to other parts of our solar system and we spread our consumerism to the stars. And in fact, uh, one of the really, one of my favorite science fiction novels from the 1950s is Cyril Kornbluth and Frederick Pohl's book, The Space Merchants, which is directly about this. It's about the wedding between advertising culture and consumerism and the dream of spaceflight. And now I think the idea of space travel and space colonization, it doesn't feel like it's it's as much a part of our fantasy of progress anymore. What, What do you think? Do you think that that idea kind of went away a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting to think about how in the mid-20th century, the notion of progress is kind of, on the one hand, it's very mundane. It's like your everyday life will be made better by gadgets Mm -hmm. and, you know, you won't have to like, legitimately, people didn't have to like do as much, you know, backbreaking labor in the home anymore once they had the dishwasher and the Mm -hmm. vacuum cleaner and various other technologies. And so it's like, on the one hand, these gadgets and these technologies will make your everyday life better. But then there's also this other kind of grander, like head in the, like looking at the stars kind of part of it, where it's like, we're going to be colonizing other planets. Usually like you see so much science fiction that's just like very confidently asserting that by the 1980s or the 1990s, you know, we will be on Mars, we'll be on Venus, we'll be on all these other, we'll be on Jupiter, we'll be We'll be colonizing all these other worlds. We'll be out there, you know, possibly colonizing beyond Earth. We'll have outposts, you know, beyond our solar system. By the 1990s, it's going to happen. Yeah. And like that's like you the know, Star Trek dream, right? That's the Star Trek timeline, essentially. It's the Star Trek dream. It's just like countless like space operas that were popular in the 50s and 60s, many of which are kind of forgotten today. And you know, this notion that, but specifically that time scale that like you see it in a lot mm-hmm. of science fiction of the mid 20th century at a period before we had actually put a human being on the, on the moon in 1969, there's this popular idea that, okay, well, once we've got someone on the moon, then we'll have someone on Mars, like immediately after that. And then boom, we'll just, we'll have colonies all over the solar system, like within decades. And it was that time scale feels ridiculous to us now, not just because obviously it's now the 2020s and we still haven't really gone beyond our own satellite, but also just what we've learned in the last like 50 or so years is that it's actually very difficult to travel to other planets, you know, in our solar system. It's time consuming. It's huge. It's difficult. And, you know, I feel like part of what also happened, though, is that we were in a battle against communism. And so our vision of progress needed to, on the one hand, be like consumer mass culture is going to make your life better. 
But also on the other hand, we were we were competing with the Russians in the space race. And that was like one of the most measurable ways that we could show that we were doing better than the Russians was who reaches these milestones first. They got the first person in space, but we got the first person on the moon. And so it's like this becomes a proxy for our war with Russia, which is really about our consumer way of life. And so those two things are kind of bound up in a really complicated way. But essentially, we lost that dream of, of space exploration. Yeah, it's really interesting because, of course, the Kardashev scale is developed by a Russian researcher. It's as if the great powers of the Cold War literally sat down together and agreed, all right, here's what progress is. Okay, ready, set, go. <laughs> and that they were like, that this was just going to be their way of proving to each other who had like the bigger rocket and who had the bigger civilization, who had left upper savagery behind <laughs> or upper barbarism behind. And, you know, it's funny that you mentioned how so many of these fantasies from the mid 20th century posited that we would be in space by the 1990s, because as that as the great powers kind of faded back um, and no longer were kind of ruling us, we began to have new fantasies. And suddenly we aren't thinking about going to Mars as much. And Werner Vinge, uh, a science fiction writer of great renown, writes an essay in the early 90s about something that he calls the singularity, which is going to be this hypothetical event in which technological advancement progresses so quickly that it outpaces human consciousness, right? Suddenly, humans will just wake up in a completely new world. All of reality will be transformed because artificial intelligence will have been evolving like rapidly, like in the time it takes us to eat breakfast, artificial intelligence will have literally remade the surface of the planet. And when Vinji wrote that essay in the 90s, he was doing the same thing that these folks were doing in the 60s and saying, oh, yeah, this is going to happen in like 10 years. Like he was certain, like, you know, oh, in the next 10 years, absolutely, the singularity is coming. And his idea really influenced not just tech companies um, and, and people designing technology, but other science fiction writers. And suddenly we had this new dream about what the future would look like. And it wound up getting tied back into the dream of space. And here is a fantastic clip of Ray Kurzweil, who is a, an AI programmer. Uh, he now works at Google. And he wrote this book about 15 years ago called The Singularity is Near. And in this video, he's explaining how we're going to use the singularity to go to space. We're gonna reorganize the vast amount of computation in this rock to make it useful. And it won't just be raw computation. We'll infuse it with exquisitely intelligent software, vastly greater than our intelligence today. And with all the knowledge of the human machine civilization, this rock, is going to be a trillion, trillion times more powerful than all biological human brains today. This is going to be quite a valuable rock. We call matter and energy reorganized in this way, computronium. We're going to reach these limits late in this century. And at that time, we're going to turn many of the rocks and other stuff suitable for computation into computronium. And so, to keep the expansion of our intelligence going, we will then need to spread out to the rest of the universe, turning some portion of it into computronium. So the thing I love about this is 
how, even though he's presenting it as science, it's just so bonkers sci-fi sounding, like computronium. <laughs> it's like, I feel like I'm on the bridge of Star in Star Trek and they're like, Captain, I'm sensing computronium in the galaxy around us. So his idea is that instead of physically traveling into space, instead, we're going to convert all matter into a substrate that can contain computation. And of course, our brains will have been uploaded into this kind of virtual world where our brains are running on computronium and computronium will spread all the way out to the ends of the universe. And so our brains will be everywhere and we will control the universe. And the interesting thing about this is it's almost like he's just plagiarizing Isaac Asimov's famous short story called The Last Question, where humans invent a supercomputer and they say to the supercomputer, okay, great, you're super. And you are going to tell us the answer to the question of how to reverse entropy in the universe, because the universe is heading toward destruction due to entropy. So how do we stop it? So the computer is just like flummoxed and it keeps developing and it keeps evolving and it keeps growing bigger and smarter. Meanwhile, humans also keep evolving and they slowly merge with computers and eventually human and computer are almost indistinguishable. And by the end of the story, all of the stars are going out in the universe. The universe is ending and the human computer thingy-wingy, this, this giant thing that, that is now evolved to this incredible point is still pondering the question, how do I stop this entropy? And the story ends, spoilers for a very old story, it ends with this supercomputer saying, let there be light. And we know what that means. I know, it's the worst. But this is this sounds like this is what Ray Kurzweil is saying in that clip. He says, in the end, humans will take over the universe and we will have a choice of what to do with it. And that's what happens in this Asimov story. So it just shows how our understanding of scientific progress coming from the mouths of scientists, in this case, he's a, a computer scientist, is just verbatim copied from kind of silly science fiction. And, you know, this is where our our kind of notion of progress is going. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because, you know, those two strands of progress, the one strand of like, consumer, you know, we're going to make everyday life here on earth better through, you know, gadgets and inventions. But meanwhile, we're also going to be reaching towards the stars. And both of those visions of progress kind of hit some speed bumps, I would say, yeah. in our lifetime. Uh, you know, the the kind of earthbound vision of like progress through gadgets and like everyday life being improved ran into, you know, climate change and political instability and a bunch of other stuff that kind of and the fact that now so much of our economy is geared towards stuff that makes a tiny handful of people rich and leaves everybody else behind. But meanwhile, you have all these like things that we've discovered about how difficult it is to send people to other planets and especially to other solar systems. And so interestingly, in the early 21st century, you have this wave of like New Space Opera, which was called The New Space Opera, yeah. influenced by Ian M. Banks and some other authors. And, you know, there was this very influential book of The New Space Opera that comes out. And our friend Anya Taniro wrote a review of it in Rain Taxi, where she talks about, like, all of these new space opera stories are are basically about post-humans. They're yes. about cyborgs. They're about people who are genetically engineered. And the idea is that it's just too hard to send human beings, as we are now, through 
you know, the dangers of space and also through the, all of the shit that they're going to have to deal with on other planets. So people need to be upgraded in order to survive in space. We can't have space adventurers who are just Captain Kirk or whatever, or Flash Gordon. We have to have space adventurers who are, you know, part machine who maybe can modify their bodies to fit whatever environment they're encountering. And you have all these, suddenly have this like wave of sci-fi stories. I forget who wrote the one where there's the person who's a great pilot because she can remove her legs and, you know, restructure her body. Her legs are kind of like, she can have legs when she needs them, but then she removes them when she doesn't because they take up too much space in her space capsule. But, you know, people need to be more resistant to radiation. They need to be more able to withstand various like, stressors that a human body just can't deal with. And so basically post-humanity and by extension, the idea that we're going to all become cyborgs is becomes the core of these space fantasies. And the question that we start having at the early, at the start of the 21st century is, is there a, an optimistic future, a, a, for, a version of progress for humanity that doesn't leave us kind of not really human anymore? Yeah, it's so interesting. I do think that the post-human future that, as you said, we see in the culture, also the murder bot books are very much about the post-human mm -hmm. future. Um, these are these are kind of the wedding between that um, Kardashev scale view and the kind of singularity view where, you know, we're all going to become machines. Um, but it also reminds me of how a lot of our fantasies about progress are also influenced by Darwin's theory of evolution. Um, so to, to unwind a bit and go back to the 19th century, which I always love to blame for everything, if we think back to that Morgan scale of civilization and Morgan basically assigning like values to different racial groups or to different national groups, that was going on with evolutionary theory too. I mean, a lot of the interpretations of evolution had to do not not necessarily from Darwin, although Darwin himself wasn't averse to this kind of interpretation. But a lot of thinkers at that period were saying, well, what evolution shows us is that humans evolved from a lower state, but also that there are different kinds of humans and we're in different parts of our evolutionary journey. And some are further along and some are in, you know, in the past and this creates a new vision of progress. The, pro the vision of progress is humans evolving into something else. And then the question becomes a kind of a moral question of which direction do they evolve? Like, do we intervene in their evolution in like a post-human way, like start implanting ourselves with technology? Um, is that evolution a kind of philosophical or religious evolution, which is what Morgan thought. He thought everyone would become like more Christian um, and that would kind of make us all civilized. So science fiction starts to grapple with that and it really changes how we think about progress when you put it in that context. Today's vision of progress definitely involves AI as like a central thing. That's like what we ultimately evolve into is like the AI or something. Right. And, you know, it does kind of come back to consumerism because certain kinds of purchases, certain types of like consumer behaviors bring us closer to this AI paradise. And now, of course, we have the metaverse, which is this whole idea that we're all going to just live in a virtual space. And, you know, I feel like what we're getting into is a cycle where we, we need a new idea of progress to save us 
from the fallout from our previous failed idea of progress. Like, okay, so industrial progress left us with all this pollution and left us with like climate change and left us with all these like huge insoluble problems. So now we need a new kind of progress to, we need a spider to eat the fly or whatever, you know, and then a horse to eat the spider, (laughs) whatever that thing goes. We need a new kind of progress to save us from our previous kind of progress. And the idea is that you hear people say that like the only thing that'll save us from our ravaged environment and from our like huge structural, you know, our hugely unsustainable economic model that we've built is AI because AI will be able to think its way out of this problem the same way that in Asimov's story, the kind of human AI glob was able to think its way past the end of the universe. And so it's like, basically, what does progress even mean in the face of climate change and in the face of all this other stuff when we've kind of now seen up close and personal how like the the kind of byproducts of progress. Yeah. You know, in some ways, I think the myth of progress is sort of about its deferred gratification about when we're finally going to set things right and have a fair and just civilization where everyone has their needs met on a material level. It's like, all right, it's always... You know, it's like the Red Queen saying we're going to have, you know, utopia yesterday and utopia tomorrow, but never utopia today. But just stay on the path, kids. Stay on the the progress path. At the same time, I think that we need a myth of progress because it's really necessary to have a mental framework for thinking about multi-generational problems because nobody is going to fix every systemic problem that we're dealing with in one generation. And so if you look at it from that perspective, progress is just a way of imagining how we're handing off our unfinished business to the future. But unfortunately, the way we tend to frame it, it becomes a really constraining myth because there's only certain kinds of futures that are allowed. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk to economist Brad DeLong, who has some really interesting ideas about how we're going to get to utopia and why we're not there yet. Now we're joined by Brad DeLong. His new book is called Slouching Toward Utopia, an Economic History of the 20th Century. Thanks so much for joining us, Brad. No, it's my immense, immense pleasure, right? Um, for one thing, I admire the two of you immensely because you have managed to make Aww. one of the most you know, entertaining and also world positive and also informative podcasts you know, that exists on this fallen sublunary sphere. Oh, well, thank you very much. <laughs> um, and anything I can do to help you succeed and continue Um, I'm eager to do, and I also hope to actually, you know, sell some books that we seem to be at (laughs) 17,000 copies so far, and I would like it to be more. All right. So that's a good way to start dealing with, yeah, with the economics of publishing. So in Slouching Toward Utopia, you really, you focus on what you call the long 20th century. And it seems to me that one of your overarching points is that Humanity was wealthier in the 20th century than it was, say, thousands of years ago, ever since the rise of agriculture. And you define this is I really want to get into your definition of wealth because you define it in a bunch of different ways. You talk about it being having ideas about how to manipulate nature and organize people or having industrial labs and corporations or even at some points just having enough stuff to live comfortably. And I'm wondering 
why you define wealth like this and what makes the 20th century so, so exceptional when it comes to wealth. And the reason I ask is because I always feel like when I'm talking to you and, and some other economists that, you know, people in previous periods were wealthy, you know, Neolithic people had lots of stuff like obsidian blades and pottery bowls. And in the 17th century, we had scientific ideas. So why is the 20th century so special? And why is this kind of wealth so awesome? Let me kind of lean heavily and overstate what I think. That kind of pre-Neolithic people, the guys with the obsidian blades that they are carrying across hundreds, if not thousands of miles, because they're very mm -hmm. useful, um, that pre-Neolithic, late Mesolithic people, you know, um, their children you know, were maybe five foot eight um, for XY people, five foot six for XX people for the most part, on average, um, at adult heights. Um, half of them did die before they were before the age of five. And, you know, they had life expectancies of 30 or so. But, you know, the life of a gatherer hunter is cognitively interesting, uh, both in terms of the society that you live in and also in terms of the problems that nature faces you every day in terms of getting enough to eat. And people look to have been relatively buff. You know, you kind of have to be a gym rat to survive in the late Mesolithic. And so part of the 30-year mm -hmm. life expectancy was indeed the gym radishness of it. Um, and then you enter the age of agriculture, and it mm -hmm. really looks like all of a sudden, you know, adult XY people are five foot four, five foot three. Adult X people are five foot one, five foot two, which seems to imply a substantial mm -hmm. degree of calcium and protein and indeed calorie what we would call deprivation. You know, um, you know, had I fed my kids a diet that would have made that tall as adults, then Alameda Child and Protective Services would have come and taken my kids away. And you know, <laughs> almost everyone would have said they were kind of right to do so. Um, and I think the reasons for this um, are pretty clear, um, at least for most societies, you know, that with kind of half your babies dying before the age of five, um, and especially after high patriarchy becomes established, you know, somewhere in the midst of time, you know, if you're 50 years old, especially, especially if you're female, you really do need to have a surviving son to advocate for you, or your social power is close to zero. And about one third of people wind up without a surviving son. Yep. So the pressures to have more kids are immense. You know, so from six minus 6,000 on in the agricultural age, you know, whenever there are improvements in ways of manipulating nature, you know, the population grows so that more people, people are anxious to have surviving sons. And so farm sizes decrease. And do, as of 1870, right, um, John Stuart Mill can write that all the mechanical inventions, you know, have done nothing to improve the standard of living of the working class, however much they may have done for the standard of living of the elite um, and however much they've done for the middle class and so forth. And, you know, that produces a really weird and a really nasty society, right, that there's no possibility of having enough for everyone, um, that most people have can't get their kids a diet to make them more than five foot four or so. 
And most people spend you know, two or three hours on a typical day thinking about how hungry they are and how they want extra calories. And so much of governance and politics becomes, you know, the kind of anti-David Graeber world. You know, a group of thugs with spears and their tame accountants, bureaucrats, and propagandists figuring out how to run and force and fraud domination and exploitation game on humanity and steal their stuff so that at least they and their families you know, can have you know, enough. And then all that the possibility of all that changes in 1870. I just wanted to clarify that when you say having enough, the definition you've just given us is really about just food, sustenance, having enough to just survive, right? It's not It's not like having stuff like having a cool drinking glass or having some kind of mechanical tiger or... It's also, you know, it's, there's also kind of, um, especially today, you know, having enough um, shelter that you're not wet. And in many mm-hmm. climates at the wrong time of year, having enough clothing that you're not thinking about how cold you are. Um, And there's also this very powerful, you know, um, not being bored, because being boredom is quite unpleasant. And, you know, an awful lot of jobs in the agricultural age, you know, that being turned into a microprocessor for an ox so that the ox plows the furrow straight for six hours a day. You know, that's really not a fit use of the, you know, wetware supercomputer that is the human brain. Um, And that even though most of us are happy most of the time being gatherer hunter lifestyles, you know, entertain enough entertainment so that you're not bored. That's very much worth a lot in terms of keeping humans happy. But yes, but yes, for the most of the part, having enough is simply having enough so that your life is not dominated by material wants hitting your brain and demanding you try to do something. So basically your argument is that during what you call the long 20th century from like 1870 to 2010 ish, uh, Malthusianism ceases to be valid, right? Like the idea, the Malthusian ideal that, that, they will, that we have too many people and not enough stuff to keep them fed and, and, and housed that that ceases to be true because of technological and, you know, to some extent, social progress. And you're putting kind of the United States at the center of this story, right? The United States is this sort of, I wouldn't, I guess not benevolent, but this progressive force that is globalizing and and technologically kind of minded. Um, but, you know, what do you say to people who see the, the history of the United States in like the the long 20th century is being one of extraction of like, we're mostly an extractive force that sucks up, you know, labor and resources from the global South in order to enrich ourselves. And any, anything that trickles down to the global South is just like crumbs. Well, there is a lot of extraction. Um, There is a lot of creation, right? And diffusion of technologies as well. I actually, a piece of the book that was on the cutting room floor because it's 600 pages already was about (laughs) how my guesses are that the ratio of extraction to creation was actually greatest during the 1770 to 1870 industrial revolution period. And then second greatest during the 1500 to 1770, you know, imperial commercial revolution period, um, especially with respect to the new world, which is absolutely, absolutely horrific. But yes, you know, a lot of extraction, um, a lot of creation. 
as Leon Trotsky said, it's the furnace of the United States is the furnace where the future is being forged. But, you know, whether it's a good or a bad future is much less clear. From Trotsky's perspective, it was a pretty bad future, right, that he thought he could go to Russia and build a better one before he wound up, you know, um, dead in Mexico City, having just lived out of Frida, moved out of Frida Kahlo's house by an NKVD agent with an axe pick um, kind of thing. I mean, I think the idea is yes, and that one of the things that our advance in technology does, it allows us to figure out how to productively, you know, manipulate nature and how to cooperatively organize ourselves. And it also teaches us how to uncooperatively organize other people. And it teaches us how to communicate, you know, and how to miscommunicate. And it also teaches us how to blow things up at a much higher and nastier rate. You know, I mean, look, I mean, back when I was a young teenager, I'd, some of the science fiction novels I would read would be about utopian worlds of relative abundance. And others, we'd be about, you know, hellscapes um, where the environment was being poisoned and where people were being brainwashed and where, you know, killer robots were stalking the skies. And lo and behold, now we have both, you know, it's kind of like the why not both joke. Um, we have extraordinary <laughs> material abundance compared to you know, all previous civilizations. We also have killer robots stalking the skies above Ukraine um, and Syria. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I have some elderly relatives whose screens are scaring the piss out of them. Um, so that they keep their eyeballs glued to the screen so then they can be sold fake diabetes cures and crypto grips. Um, and we're cooking the planet. Um, and we're cooking the planet. The seven warmest years on record were the past seven years. And this year, it looks like the monsoon was kind of 300 miles off in its location. And given that 3.5 billion people depend for their for their livelihood on the monsoon being in the right place at the right time with the right strength at the right temperature, that's disturbing. Yeah, one of the things that I really liked about your book is that you kind of, in some ways, you stage the 20th century as a conflict between one group of people who are looking to the market for the answers to all their questions and needs. And then there's this other group you know, you already brought up Trotsky and you talk a, like, a lot about, you know, people who are interested in market regulation like Keynes, and they're interested in um, how we can have some kind of social justice or some kind of justice, even if not today's notion of social justice. And it feels like that there that these two groups, some of whom overlap, have two different ideas of progress. And I wonder if you could talk about that, about how those two kinds of progress work together and against each other in the 20th century. Although I'd say both currents also have, you know, um, good and evil parts to them. Mm -hmm. That, you know, the Andrew Carnegie saying the law of the market may be hard, but it makes us very productive. And it's, in fact, essential for the progress of the race. You know, explicitly saying that I am more fit in some Darwinian long-run sense than you are, and I deserve to be. The Ayn Rand, it's like the Ayn Rand vision of, you know, the future, yeah. Yes. And on the other hand, you know, Milton Friedman, at least in the moods when he remembers that he was um, 
a guy who lost his job at the University of Wisconsin because Wisconsin legislators said that, you know, the university had too many Jews on the faculty already, um, saying that the market allocation is unfair, you know, but at least it's not positively malicious. You know, at least it rewards the productive and the lucky, um, mm-hmm. as opposed to be one that rewards the Aryan um, or the Gentile yeah. exclusively. That's the meritocracy argument, I guess. Yeah, or the, the meritoc- meritocracy is less, well, except it has two flavors, right? It's that meritocracy is good because we are predestined to be more fit. Um, and there's also meritocracy is less bad than other hierarchical principles and we are in some sense trapped as you know east african plains apes that can barely remember where we left our keys last night uh, we are trapped into establishing hierarchies and you know, on the other hand there's the you know on the social justice side there's the one that says wait a minute you know that the friedrich von hayek's say that the market is very productive um and that what you really should do is accept that it produces the best humans can get, you know, and accept the market giveth, the market taketh away, blessed be the name of the market. But saying that on the other hand, that people demand more rights than property rights and a market that says the only rights you have are your property rights is not something that human beings, you know, will sustain, will stand for. And you simply cannot build a society like this. You know, you'll get a revolution. You know, it may be a good revolution. It may be a bad revolution. It may be people fighting for equal justice and human flourishing. It may be people whose major beef is that other people are getting Obama phones and that this mishmash is what structures, you know, the people's reactions to the increasing technology driven prosperity. So back in the day, like I remember I had a lot of conversations in the early 90s with like Bill Clinton acolytes who talked rapturously about something called the inverted pyramid of social development. And this was a type of progress that I wanted to ask you about. The inverted pyramid, as it was explained to me, was you have all these people who are working in agriculture, who are basically, whose potential productivity is not being harnessed. And the way that you lift these people out of agriculture and out of basically abject poverty is you turn them into factory workers and low-paid factory workers. You 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 monetize their labor by making them work 12 hours a day for a dollar a day or whatever, building, making shoes or building microprocessors or whatever. And that eventually this creates a middle class and that in 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 these like less you know privileged countries, less wealthy countries, this creates a middle class, and then that middle class lifts more people up, and then eventually everybody gets to look like us, or not exactly like us, but everybody gets to have the same standard of living that we do. And you know, even at the time, then this was something that this was the era of NAFTA and GATT and like trade agreements and like globalization. And the idea was that we're going to lift the world out of poverty through the inverted pyramid. And even at the time, it seemed like a really cruel way to do this because you were basically, you were turning people into literal cogs in a machine and, you know, generations of people were going to be basically exploited horribly in order to create this, this putative middle class. So do you feel like the inverted pyramid actually worked out? Do you feel like that was a good model? A good model, right? That, I mean, we have been worried about technological unemployment for a very long time, right? That, you know, there are now 8 billion of us. And, you know, if you put each of us 
all by ourselves without a society someplace, you know, even in the places that are agriculturally most productive, kind of one of us on our own is almost surely going to die in terms unless, you know, um, and yet as a society, we can construct an 8 billion strong, you know, division of labor, which includes such things as the wonderful people at the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation, who are helping to make the guts of devices that cause us great delight and inform us enormously. Um, and the question is, how do we structure that division of labor um, so that we can be doing things that are useful? And, you know, useful things are kind of thinking up new ideas about manipulating nature, productively organizing ourselves, you know, communicating and informing um, each other, moving things around with our strong backs and manipulating things with our very nimble fingers and the eye brain hand loop and so forth. And then we start inventing things that change the job mix, um, mm. starting with domesticating the horse. And all of a sudden, strong backs are a lot less useful because we got horses. And then once we have the horse, well, you know, the horse needs a microcontroller. The horse is, wants to do horse things. The horse does not want to pull a plow and can be trained to actually want tolerate a person on it. But... You know, the horse wants to do horse things. You need a microcontroller. Um, you need a microcontroller to deal with it. And so that provides employment for humans, you know. And then we get textile machinery. Um, and with textile machinery, we then have a great deal, um, a great deal of work that humans don't have to do. Um, that I've been told that the statue of the Venus de Milo, that her, are, her upper arm position suggests that her lower arms and hands are in fact using a hand spindle, you know, that she's spinning thread. And, you know, this is a goddess. This is perhaps, you know, female person, female entity number five in the power hierarchy of classical Greek civilization. And yet she's spinning. Um, similarly, Helen of Troy by inherited right, queen of Sparta, is weaving when Telemachus comes upon her in the Odyssey. Um, and you don't have to do that. And so the question is, what then do people do to add value? And the answer is that, you know, there are machines and animals need microprocessors. Um, and there's a great deal of communication and accounting to be done. And there are an awful lot of robots that we haven't figured out how to invent yet. And so people get squashed into those kinds of jobs. Um, and the ones in which you're a robot that you haven't, people haven't figured out how to invent yet are ones in which are relatively boring and produce lots of injuries, repetitive strain injuries, you know, that kind of, um, and as Adam Smith said, if someone is spending eight hours a day, you know, putting heads on pins, they tend to become as, you know, as uneducated, as stupid and as narrow sighted as humans can be. Therefore, um, Adam Smith said it's very important to have public education and public libraries in order to greatly broaden the minds of everyone whom the division of labor is working against. So, yeah, it's a huge problem. Um, hopefully the problem will be solved when we manage to invent sufficient robots that we no longer have to draft people into robot jobs. And then we can all have enough and consider the problem of how to live life wisely and well.
But the problem with the 20th century is that we are starting to figure out how to solve the problem of baking a sufficiently large economic pie, but we are still absolutely flummoxed by the problems of slicing it and pasting it, um, of equitably distributing it and then utilizing it so that people can actually think about how to live lives wisely and well. Yeah, this this makes me think of this section in your book where you sort of talk about the halcyon days after World War II, where we actually kind of have this moment kind of of social democracy in the West. Although who is we? Yes. So one of the things I appreciated about your book was that you were very careful to situate this within um, the West and the developed world. And you did remind us again and again that there are lots of people uh, around the world, especially now, who are not getting to participate in all of this wealth that was generated by the 20th century. So I want to put a pin in that and just ask you about the moments leading up to this phase in the West, where we kind of had this great time after World War II, that we had the rise of fascism, we had World War II, and then we kind of got to this precarious moment of you know semi-democracy emerging in various places. And I wonder if you think that we're entering a phase like that again, because you end the book in 2010, or you end the 20th century in 2010, kind of as we're seeing a similar rise of fascism around the world that that we were grappling with in the 1930s. Like, I know that history doesn't repeat perfectly, but do you see similar forces, or do you think it's actually a mistake to compare the 30s fascism with this 2020s fascism? Well... First, let me be an orthodox Marxist, or what I regard as an orthodox Marxist, and say that the underlying technological forces of production today are very different than what they were in the 1930s. In the 1930s, we were moving from a second industrial revolution into a mass production economy, which, among other things, gave you mass unionization. And now we're moving from a global value chain economy into an infobiotech economy that we don't have a terribly good handle on. But doesn't that make it in some ways more similar because we're seeing a shift in this in infrastructure, a shift in modes of production? Yes, that all the, yeah. if you want to say it, that every 30 years since 1870, the technological foundations of the economy have been completely reworked by Schumpeterian creative destruction. And as this hardware changes, People are frantically trying to rewrite the econo socio political software network, you know, society relations of production in such a way that the whole thing doesn't crash catastrophically. And no, but it is crashing. It is, it is, it is. And the 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 world market and technology are out there like Elon demanding that you produce something running within a week or else. So yes, that much seems to be very much the same. Consider how very narrow was the escape in the 1930s, you know, that I cannot see a road to post-World War II social democracy that does not run through FDR and the New Deal. And I can see an alternative world in which, you know, Herbert Hoover doesn't get the Republican nomination in 1928 in which the Republican Party doubles down on someone more orthodox rather than the suspiciously left-wing, the Republicans of the day, Hoover. And L. Smith and FDR win in 1928 and then cannot handle the Great Depression. And Hoover, as the reforming Republican, comes in in 1932, but has absolutely no desire to run a new deal, instead wants to double down on orthodoxy. And, you know, as it was... MacArthur, Patton, and Eisenhower 
drove the bonus marchers out of the mall in 1931 in an event that was perhaps a more striking violation of U.S. constitutional norms in some ways than January 6th, um, in which the U.S. goes fascist as well and austerian and looks you know, um, like a current version of Britain post-Brexit, only times four, and we never get the New Deal, and then the U.S. doesn't win World War II so overwhelmingly. And, you know, we never get social democracy in the advanced, uh, in the global north after World War II. Um, so one way to say is that straight is the gate, that very narrow is the path that we manage to tread. Um, and when I think that way, I actually get relatively pessimistic. So speaking of pessimism, you know, your idea that basically the long 20th century ends in 2010, that's when we have this period of kind of, you know, kind of economic stagnation, capital chasing short-term returns, and people, you know, no longer seeing like improvements in their their um, their standard of living, like globally. Um, my, my worry, my nightmare is that, you know, everybody's like, okay, Tom, we talked about Malthusianism a little bit earlier. Malthusianism was vanquished. It's gone. It's over. It's been disproved. Is there a world where Malthus makes a comeback where we start to go, we can't actually support this population anymore because of climate change, because of, you know, some of the bad decisions we've made economically? I mean, I mean, the world of high patriarchy in which you're desperate to have a surviving son so that you actually cannot be burned as a witch um, in your old age and in which one third of people do not have surviving sons, I think that's gone. Our more or less a stable population world of 10 billion that finds itself in bigger and bigger problems as the world warms up and thus as the wheat and corn belts move north, further, further north, um, and as California's Central Valley turns itself from an agricultural wonderland into an, a northern extension of the Mojave Desert, you know, we could well wind up in such a, such a disaster. Um, you know, my friend Larry Summers says that he really doesn't think we're going to get there, that after all, there are 8 billion of us, and that collectively we're quite smart, and the technologies are wonderful if we manage to harness them for productivity and for equitable redistribution, and that just as we've managed to avoid total catastrophe throughout the 20th century, we'll manage to avoid total catastrophe throughout the 21st and wind up with a richer world in which our odds are better. Um, I find myself less optimistic, largely because we've been doing such a lousy job with dealing with global warming so far. Um, because nuclear proliferation is now reaching critical mass, to make a bad pun, and because we have, you know, resurgent neo-fascism in lots of places. And thus the headwinds seem considerably stronger than they were throughout much of the 20th century, to which Larry points out that I would be even more depressed in 1926 or in 1933 than I am now, and I have to agree. Right, but of course there is what you were saying earlier about the New Deal being this kind of almost didn't happen historical event and that that was kind of one of the few ways that we got out of that situation. I guess like to to finish up, I want to ask you what 
your utopia looks like when you think about trying to reach a more utopian world? What what is that? We've talked about the the Malthusian dark side. So what is the what's what are we aiming at here? You know, we're aiming at a world where everyone can have enough and everyone can have respect or can have sufficient respect for others. You know, not to feel that you know not to be for not to be forced by society to feel very small in some way. So everyone globally, so we're talking about the entire globe would have enough food and shelter and whatever to to feel as if they can survive. As if they can survive and as if they're playing a very useful role, right? As mm-hmm. if they really, really are, you know, 8 billion of us and we're all very useful to each other and we're all very valuable pieces of the anthology intelligence that is humanity. And that we all have enough stuff that we don't have to spend a lot of time thinking about how hungry we are um, or how wet we are or how bored we are. And other than that, we are each allowed to experiment with living life wisely and well and report back on how our attempts to live life wisely and well are proceeding. When you brought up feeling respected, like nobody feels as if they're made small, do you think that's something that economics can fix? Or is that something that's more properly the realm of social justice or freedom or government or politics, anything that is outside the realm of the market, basically? Um, Well, you know, it clearly has an economic element, you know, that it's hard to feel respected if people aren't giving you enough to eat or if people are forcing you to obsequiously beg on street corners. Or if there's a world where you think that, gee, you know, I'm only holding it together now. And if, you know, I have another mental health crisis next month, I'm going to wind up living on a box, in a box, you know, if I'm lucky. Um, That that's not a world that a world as rich as we are um, should create. Um, You know, as Keynes said, and he was trying to kind of get things together for the post-World War II world that, you know, um, that economists are not civilization, but if they manage to do their job, there is then the possibility of civilization. And, you know, all economists can do is be guardians of the possibility of civilization and then hand the job of civilization off to someone else, you know, who knows more. And he would also say that Economic thinking outside of its place is positively harmful, that at the moment our gods are avarice and usury and precaution, but that in a utopian world, those will not be gods. Those will be things that are regarded as things that require that you spend more time with your psychotherapist, except to find yourself (laughs) focusing on them. Well, that's a really great place to wind up. The book is called Slouching Toward Utopia. And where can people find your work online? Um, People can now find my work online at braddelong.substack.com, which is the latest incarnation of the weblog that I've been maintaining since in the late 1990s. My ex-roommate, Paul Mendy, told me that the internet frontier was the hot place to be. And (laughs) I have been too online ever since I took his advice. And are you still on Twitter? I'm still on Twitter. Um, I'm still on Twitter, although I must confess it's not the most auspicious of launchings for what I guess I should now call Musker. (laughs) Awesome. All right. right. Well, thanks again so much for joining us. Okay, You're very welcome. Thank you very, very much for inviting me. 
Thank you so much for listening. This has been another episode of Our Opinions Are Correct, and we're going to be back in your ears in two weeks. But remember, if you support us on Patreon, you'll get a mini episode next week and every other week into infinity. Thank you so much to our intrepid producer, Veronica Simonetti, who always leads us into the future with a bright light. And thank you to Chris Palmer for the music. And we will talk to you later. If you're a patron, we'll see you on Discord. Bye! Bye!